A woman's sudden bout of dizziness transports her back in time to rescue Rufus, a white male living in the antebellum South. The woman, Dana. The book, Kindred. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! This is Alexis. And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books, hashtag, and drama. Excuse me. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's like four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the things we do to be consistent. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, I repeat, I'm back on the question. I ain't got no other question for you. I like to follow the plan, okay? How uh, are you doing? And you better have something listen, to say. Listen, listen. Readers, if you're just tuning into this show, this is your first episode. (laughs) Hi. Two episodes ago, I created a game show where um, Alexis did not know what was going on and I put her on the spot. She hates being put on the spot, which is why I did it. This is my week. And it was hilarious. That's prayers for the stolen. Go back and listen to that. It's funny. (laughs) So what did I do this week? What did I do? No, I did do something. What did I do? Well, listen, let me just tell you what happened to me um, the other day. Um, I have allergies asthma all the fun stuff that deals with you know breathing and fun stuff yeah you sounded terrible a few days ago yeah so um i feel like i can tell the difference between my allergy sneezes and a cold sneezes well the other day i was thinking a cold sneeze was happening because they was i mean i went through a whole box of tissue and a half Mm mm-hmm that's a cold sneeze. And so I had to nurse myself back to health. I pulled out all the remedies. I was drinking uh, vitamin C powder and um, hot liquids and steaming faces and all the fun <laughs> stuff you do to make yourself well again. Oh, I to did be able that. to breathe, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I did the, um, I ordered some produce from Whole Check. I mean, Whole Foods. <laughs> and one of my items that I needed was um, substituted. The item was a bag of Granny Smith apples. And that was my whole reason for ordering because my daughter has this little concoction that she uses. So I was just going to make it and, uh, you know, push the cold out of me. Yeah. And so, um, like I said, that was my whole reason for ordering. I got a whole bunch of other stuff, but the whole point was the apples. So I got the substitution request. They said we're going to substitute it for um, this apple. (laughs) That costs a dollar ninety nine. What an apple! I was like, okay, fine. I need the apples. I need five apples. Okay, you pay seven dollars for apples. Listen unto me. Listen <laughs> unto me. Why, when my delivery arrives, I have one Granny Smith apple. One. Now I have placed an order for a bag of Granny Smith apples. Gonna substitute me with one. You know what? Apple. I'm gonna play the other side here. Play it all week long. It's a bag. It's a bag. I ordered a bag. You know it. Shout out to you, Instacart shoppers. You tired of us? You tired of us? (laughs) You tired of going to the store just for some eggs and then driving three miles to deliver to our door? And we be healthy. We just don't feel like it. You're tired of that. That's why you're substituting hoagies for milk. Chili starter oh, for milk. orange juice. Y'all Stop don't care it. about Mm-mm. us. And I get it. I get it. Mm-mm. So she wanted an apple. She got an apple. 
I wanted apples, plural. <laughs> you know she, she couldn't afford all them apples, so thank you. <laughs> so what did you do? Are you healthy now or what's up? You sound a lot better. Yes, yes, I'm much healthier. I used that, cut the apple in half and made my concoction. In the meantime, I called um, the delivery service and was livid. Oh, just get your money back from, yeah, Instacart. That's not a big deal. I do that all the time. Live it. it. It was actually well. It was whole check. So, oh yeah, really get your money back from whole check. Yeah, <laughs> John like, Bezos don't need that. <laughs> anyway, let's keep it moving. Let's keep it moving. Now it's time for society says where we share your comments with the rest of our Liddy society. Yay! Kyrie, yes. Did you have a comment that you wanted to share this week? I did. I'm going back to Apple Podcasts because I live there now, and oh, this wow. comment is from Nell for you. And she says, Lit Society is lit. Hey, she says, I love hearing these two talk about books. Absolutely love it. My first listen was the Animal Farm reading and my husband and I died laughing. They're so fun to (laughs) listen to and doing the work to make reading fun and lighthearted again. Well, thank you. Now, that's definitely our mission. Our goal with this show is to make reading fun and to connect with people who already love to read and perhaps get others interested because reading is awesome. What about you, Alexis? You have any um, particularly lit comments you'd like to share? So I jumped on this uh, IG post and it's from Bettina923. And actually, I was drawn to the post because my daughter used to have a step. Uh, a stuffed frog called Patina. It was the cutest thing and it just disappeared. I think somebody stole Patina, but we had loved her. We loved her. She had on a dress. She was a frog. Anyway, Patina923 said, I enjoyed your podcast on Anna Karenina. I haven't read the book and probably never will, but y'all reviews are so funny. Right, Bettina? I believe on that. Yeah. It is not. Thank you for your honesty. That book long. Yep. That book is long. That book is long. <laughs> Listen, remember, readers, to have your comments shared, message us on Twitter, Instagram, the Facebook, or we especially love it when you leave us a review on the Apple Podcast. Leave I'm it. in the five does star, and the star. on today. <laughs> does and ons. Okay, let's get into it now. Each week, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book that we're reading. And the theme chosen for this week is... (laughs) This is a surprise to me. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) And a surprise to me. We'll figure it out (laughs) as we go along, okay? How to deal with hostile and confrontational people. And it's by our favorite people at Psychology Today. (laughs) You know, this is similar (laughs) to... uh, We had obnoxious people uh, before. That was a theme. How to deal with obnoxious people. So what's the difference? Yeah, so obnoxious people aren't um, necessarily hostile, Mm. okay? Okay. Okay, so there's a slight difference here. So, and you know, today we are experiencing hostility and confrontation uh, globally, right? Yeah. Um, People feel strongly about their opinions, and you cannot disagree with them, right? Yes. There's Mm -hmm. no wiggle room for it. And we see it all over the news, on social media, but... When these things come up, we want to be safe. And so this article talks about nine ways that we can do that. Number one, keep safe. Like that's the most important thing. Keep safe. The most important um, priority when you're facing a confrontational and hostile individual, you got to protect yourself. If you don't feel comfortable, 
get to stepping, leave, seek help if necessary, find the support that you need, call law enforcement if you have to. This is a must. You have to protect yourself first. Should you decide to deal with the aggressor, we got some other skills and strategies, and that's what we're going to continue with. So number two. So number one is to stay safe, maybe remove yourself from the environment. Absolutely. Not be provoked by this um, aggressive person. Right. Um, Number two, keep your distance. Keep your options open. Listen, listen. It's not always worth it. And I'm going to say it's not worth it. Just it's not worth it. Man, is it ever worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Your time is more valuable. Your inner peace is more valuable. Your well-being is important. Unless there's something really important at stake. And really, how many times is it? Don't don't give that other person the energy. Okay. Don't give them the energy. This could be an angry driver, a pushy relative, a domineering supervisor. Just keep your distance. So, and this isn't like perhaps you're in school or at work and someone is encroaching on your personal space and it could perhaps lead to something uh, more, more aggressive. Then you might have to stand your ground and clearly and even respectfully let them know who you are and what you will accept and what you won't accept. That sometimes you do got to, you know, you do have we to do. nip it in the bud before it get too crazy. But yeah. but and when we, you talk about like a <laughs> road rage, or, don't ever get in a fight with nobody in a vehicle. <laughs> no, that don't is get a out sign your vehicle of insanity. To fight. No, nobody. Don't <laughs> yeah, do it. Don't, don't do, do it. it. It's it's not because it's not worth it. Right. Yeah. It's not worth it ever. And we'll talk more a little more about what you're um what you commented okay, on. Okay. Okay. In just a, a second. Uh, number three, keep your cool and avoid escalation. So they say that the most common characteristic of confrontational and hostile people is that they're projecting their aggression so that they can push your buttons and keep you off of balance. And so they try to exploit your weakness by creating an advantage for themselves. Don't allow yourself to be provoked. You need to use your judgment to deal with um, these situations. That's difficult, but yeah. Yeah. And that comes Imagine with humility, that. right? <clears throat> Not right, being right. easily provoked. And self-control, right? Mm. Yep. When you feel yeah. upset or challenged with somebody before you say or do something that you might later regret, take a deep breath, count to 10. And hopefully by the time you get to 10, um, you'll be able to release some of the anxiety. or well, not the anxiety or the... Um, yeah, anxiety, the tension. Of, that sure. you're, um, you've created. So if that doesn't happen, then you may need to kind of take a walk and um, say things like, let's deal with this later. I got a cool off. Now it's not a good time for me to talk. I can't talk about this right now. I'm just not in the right place. So do what you have to do to um, maybe give someone a call that, you know, is going to be positive or help you calm down. Right. To kind of keep yourself cool. And again, that requires humility and self-control. Number four, depersonalize and shift from reactive to pro- proactive. Oh, you do this a lot with me and I be noticing <laughs> it, but I'd be like, oh, she she's trying to um, psychology today me. I'd be like, Alexis, blah, 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 blah. And you'll be like, mm hmm, yes. <laughs> and how did that make you feel when that happened? And I'd be like, well, I felt like this. And you'd be like, yes. And your feelings are important. And I know what you're doing, but I can't stop it. <laughs> so I just take my medicine. I say, oh, she's trying to condescend to me right now. I'll allow it. 
I don't remember those you things. You do that a lot. Okay. <laughs> there was a quote in the article. It said, and it's from Miguel and Hel Riez. And he, he said, don't take anything personally. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality. When you are immune to the opinions and actions of others, you won't let the victim of you won't be the victim of needless suffering. So I thought that was pretty I interesting. Love that. Yeah, right. Um, so you got to be mindful that the nature of confrontational and hostile people is to get you to um, um, react. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to take yourself. It's not about me. There's something going on in that person's life. Hey, listen. Yeah, they might accuse, they might try to throw on you the baggage that they're carrying, um, even subconsciously, Mm -hmm. calling you things, saying things about you um, that they feel about themselves. So it's always about them. It's really never about you. And you are doing the best you can. Every day you're working hard to be a better person and to instill in yourself the qualities that are going to lead to your success. So if you fail sometimes and people do throw it in your face, shame on them. Because they right. are also working to be the best that they can be. So, you know. Right. Yeah. Number five, know your fundamental human right. Okay. You have a right to be treated with respect, you know, express your feelings, set your own priorities, say no and not feel guilty without people kind of coming for you. So know your rights and just kind of stand in them. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to be firm and not be overly emotional. Right. So you can look people in the eye and speak clearly about what you will allow and what you won't allow. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. It also mentions that, and and we know this, that our society is full of people who don't respect rights, right? Or boundaries. They want to deprive us, or boundaries. They don't, they Mm want to deprive us of our rights and and try to take advantage of us. And um, without turning into a a hostile and confrontational person ourselves, we can um, stand up for ourselves. And doing our best not to escalate the situation further. But, you know, sometimes it's not up to you. (laughs) Right. And that's true. That's true. Number six, utilize assertive and effective communication. Now, that's what you were saying just a few seconds ago. Avoid interacting with aggressors um, unless you absolutely have to. Right. So you're honoring that person and yourself when you're... um, using assertive communication. And that's kind of radical. Like just because someone disrespects you doesn't mean that you have to disrespect them. They may seemingly deserve it, but nothing about them needs to change who you are. Number seven, consider intervention in close relationships. So sometimes um, an individual who's chronically confrontational and hostile simply isn't themselves. So there could be other issues. Maybe they're having a life crisis. And we kind of mentioned this before. There's their own personal issues that are being put upon, projected onto you. Brain trauma, right? Auto accident, head injury, sports injury, drug issues, um, substance abuse disorders. Other factors can affect people's moods and behaviors. So we want to be mindful of that. And with if it's a close family member or maybe even a friend, then we want to consider helping them to seek professional help. We could talk to them about that. Number eight, stand up to bullies safely. Right? Mm-hmm. Kari, you mentioned this earlier as well. Listen, I was bullied in school, so I know this one. I you know was on it. both sides of that aisle, wasn't you? <laughs> Stop it. Don't tell that story. <laughs> 
It's not true. It's not oh, true. Look, okay, okay. Don't bully me. Calm down, please. <laughs> but what not bullies the do, okay. <laughs> they pick on those who they perceive as weaker. So as long as you remain passive and compliant, you make yourself a target. So, But really, bullies are cowards. Well, a lot of them are. Let's just say that. A lot of them. So when you show some backbone and you stand up for yourself, bullies back down my bully did i mean i was doing homework for weeks until i stood up for myself (laughs) so it's a whole thing you gotta stand up for yourself all right number nine our final one it said set consequence set consequences to compel respect and cooperation when they violate when these confrontational and hostile individuals violate your boundaries and won't take um no for an answer and the idea here is to let them know the consequences of their actions. And this is taken from the author of the article's book, How to Successfully Handle Aggressive, Intimidating, and Controlling People. <laughs> Kari, did you have anything else you wanted to add to our list of um, dealing with confrontational and hostile people? Yeah, I want to say this is a very privileged conversation. And perhaps we are in a situation where we can remove ourselves from the environment containing the confrontational person, but perhaps we are not like our protagonist mm-hmm. in this book. Yep. Maybe we live in a house with someone who is, oh, this is so common, especially right now. Someone who is always trying to put us down, trying to um, get us going so that they can start a fight and release their own um, anxiety or whatever. In those situations, you know, still try to remove yourself as much as possible. You mentioned Alexis going for a walk. Um, it's about to get cold in Chicago. Ain't nobody trying to go for a walk, but maybe go for a drive, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. still try to if remove you yourself car. if you can't. Yeah. And not throw logs into that fire that that person is trying to create by going tit for tat with them. But this is a very, I mean, this is a conversation we're having because, um, you know, we, we always uh, so far have had the freedom mostly in our lives to, um, to remove ourselves. Um, so my heart just goes to people who don't have that privilege. Yeah. And, you know, I thought about that. I was like, this is kind of, how is this, how can this be a theme when what compared to what we're dealing with in the book? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I thought about that and I was like, you know, you still deal with hostile confrontational people while we are not um, in a slave era where we're forced to submit. Submit. That's the right word. Yep. Mm -hmm. Submit to this sort of treatment, that sort of treatment where we can, where it's possible. Like you said, it's a privileged conversation where it's possible. We can apply these steps. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's take a quick break before we jump into the author and context of our book, Kindred by Octavia Butler. Let's do it. Can you give us some background and context on our author and this book? First, I want to start off with all the things Octavia Butler was not. Octavia Butler was not the child of black social and scholastic royalty. She was not a child prodigy. She did not attend any big name university. And she was not always celebrated during her life. She was not always encouraged um, to be excellent by her family. However, this is what she was. 
Octavia Butler was the first black female science fiction writer and is a hugely successful writer overall. She was born in Pasadena, California on June 22nd, 1947. Her father and mother were hardworking people. He a shoeshine man and she a housemaid. Um, however, her father died when she was just seven years old and she was raised from that point on by her grandmother and by her mother, um, her widowed mother. Um, and growing up, she saw her mother poorly treated by the white house owners. Um, Eventually, Butler developed an intense shyness, and this shyness gifted her with loneliness and a mild case mm. of dyslexia. Um, imagine mm. a writer with a, a mild case wow. of dyslexia. Um, she found escape at her local library, like someone else I know, hey. a little girl on this show named Alexis, hey. and quickly fell in love with science fiction. At 10 years old, her mother bought her a typewriter and Octavia set to work with her two fingers typing out uh, one of her first stories, which she believed peck, was peck, like, peck, peck, peck. yeah, peck, peck, peck. <laughs> and she was like, everything I'm writing is better than what's on TV. She hey. had the confidence. Okay. She was shy, but she I knew she had a gift <laughs> with that confidence. Yeah. And I love it. I love, I love it. it. You can be I good at it. something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. After an aunt told her, baby, Negroes can't be writers. She continued undeterred classic and submitted mm -hmm. her first story to a sci-fi magazine in junior high school. After graduating high school, she attended community college at night. Her first year, she earned a school-wide writing contest complete with a humble cash prize. I think it was like 10 or $15. Okay. Um, $15. And this is awesome. I'm through. <laughs> In this uh, setting, also the idea for Kindred was um, conceived when a young man in her class, presumably, um, presumably Kanye, loudly and emphatically <laughs> criticized previous generations of blacks for being subservient to whites. Octavia didn't, you know, stand up and throw her hat in the ring. She just thought to herself, I'm going to write a story that provides context and explores the nuances laced throughout history. And that's the book mm. we're reading today, Kindred. After college, she worked a string of jobs, often waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. to write her stories. However, sci-fi was a world dominated by uh, white men, which it is now, um, and success eluded her. She'd submit manuscripts and, you know, not hear back from a publisher. Very typical stuff. But then an opportunity arrived. She attended the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop for six weeks, um, excuse me, for six weeks, meeting a mentor who would become a longtime friend, writer Samuel Delaney, and he's also a science fiction writer. Thereafter, her trajectory gradually changed, shifted. In 1979, she wrote Kindred, which remains her best-selling novel. It's one of the many works published by Butler. Butler wow. died of a stroke in 2006 at the age okay. of 58. Wow, that's some good information. I love it. Did you have any context about Octavia? No, ma'am, I, I have nothing to contribute this. Week. Okay, no problem. <laughs> but I appreciate all the information you gave. Real talk, real talk, okay? okay? And if we could just move on a little sure, bit. Sure, sure, sure. Why don't you give us a brief synopsis with no spoilers? The first science fiction written by a black woman, Kindred, is the story of 26-year-old Dana, an intelligent, successful writer living in California. One day, she is inexplicably ripped from her home and thrown into antebellum Maryland. There awaits her more than a few tough decisions and a puzzle that must be solved before she can ever return home for good. Alexis, did you have any first thoughts about Kindred? Um, so, I found Kindred when I was looking for my list of books to read like early on and it was just so many books on my list that I, I never really got to 
select it out and put it on the list. But then we got a recommendation. I believe it was from Kylie Reed. Yes, so, Kylie Reed, the author of Such a Fun Age. Yes. Yeah. So I um I saw her recommendation. I got excited about it. So when you put it on the list, I um jumped at it. So no real first thoughts. I was just excited to dig in to see what it's all about because I'd heard um good things. Yeah. How about you? Um, well, I love books that explore the um truth in antebellum antebellum mm. romance. So um just think, readers. Gone with the Wind, this book was happening simultaneously in that um, universe. So a lot of times we hear about, maybe not so much nowadays, since people are really realizing that antebellum literally means before war. And it refers to the time before blacks were free. Oh, what the the beautiful good old days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Folks want to have antebellum weddings and antebellum clothing lines. And listen. This book, Kendra, is like, holla, holla, holla. This is actually what you mean when you're referring to this time. Is that what you mean? Is that is what that you want to say? Mm-hmm. Is that is this the time you're longing for? So I love uh, reading about that. And then um, this is such a unique science fiction. It's a historical science fiction. And I've never read historical science fiction. I don't think so. As she looks uh, at her bookshelf. I'm looking at my bookshelf. Many books. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have any historical science fiction, so I was excited to get into it. Well, that's great. All right, well, we're getting ready to get into it. We're going to take that deep dive, Woo-hoo. fill it with all kinds of spoilers. So, Kari, take the wheel. Alexis, listen. Dana wakes up in a hospital bed. Dana is the protagonist will follow throughout this book. She's feeling disoriented her arm is gone her left arm and then there's kevin yeah it's shocking and then there's kevin when the police were by her bedside they kept trying to blame kevin for what happened to her she could barely speak but she she told them that it was her fault not kevin's it took a while to convince them fortunately when she came to there was kevin by her bed oh he was dozing off and she strains to look at her arm above Hmm. the elbow she says They had to, he replies. He says the police detained him, but let him go when he told them the truth. If you told him the truth, you'd be in an insane asylum, she Mm -hmm, says. mm -hmm. It's true. The truth is strange. He told them as much of the truth as he could. She was screaming when he found her. Her arm was in the wall, but it wasn't clear how. What? What? (laughs) And it seemed the wall was crushing her arm. Neither truly understands what happened. That's the prologue. Me either. (laughs) Me either. Okay. I don't. (laughs) Chapter one. Uh, Here we go. They're moving. Kevin and Dana. And Kevin's frustrated about his writing. They're packing up. They're putting away books when suddenly Dana is not in the home, but near a river surrounded by pine trees. And there's a boy drowning. Okay. Listen, wait, wait. this book <laughs> goes right into the time travel. It is right not a mystery. It. It, there is no um, device or machine set up. No, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. She packing up. She looks up and she's no longer in her house packing up her books. She's now near a river. That's it. Okay. And, and you got to be like, <laughs> wait, what? what? <laughs> Did I miss something in here? Let me rewind that. 
<laughs> so where where Kevin was and where all her stuff was, she now sees a river and inside of that river is a boy and he's drowning. She runs out to save him. But when she brings him ashore, a hysterical woman grabs the boy from Dana. It's his mother. Dana takes the boy back from his mother and begins resuscitating him. His mother begins beating Dana relentlessly, screaming, you killed my baby. Dana manages to push the woman away. Is the boy dead? It's not clear. The boy's name is Rufus. With Dana's help, Rufus begins breathing on his own. She turns around, away from the boy, to see a long shotgun pointed at her, held by a man. Mercy. Then suddenly, she's back in the house with Kevin. She's soaking, <laughs> she's soaking wet, covered in mud. Kevin is dumbfounded. Where, where did you, how, how did you, he tells her, she was gone for only seconds. Neither Kevin, understand. I feel the same way. Kevin, <laughs> let me just say I feel the same way. And then it's like, will it happen again? If so, when? What did happen? Will there be a gun waiting for her? If it ever does happen again? What's what? So what? Moving mm-hmm. on. Chapter two. During a low-key dinner of chicken and shrimp at home with Kevin, while they're enjoying each other's company and dinner, it happens again. The table in front of her and the room starts to blur. And then they all vanish. She's sitting on a small bed and a redheaded boy has his back to her. That boy is lighting the curtains in the room on fire. Good grief. (laughs) She quickly acts, grabbing the curtains and throwing them out of the window. Both her and the boy look down at the drapes, lighting the night as the fire dims. The boy isn't Rufus. It's an older boy, a boy too old not to know he shouldn't be playing with fire. Now that she's saved him, will she be transported home again quickly? Or would she never return home again? What, what are the rules of this thing? She decides to pull information from the boy, speaking to him in a calm voice, the way Alexis does to me when she's frustrated. <laughs> the boy has a southern accent. She must be in the south somewhere. She asks him for his name. Rufus, he says. It is Rufus. Do you remember me? She says. No, he says. Do you remember nearly drowning mm, when you were like younger? That. She says. He remembers instantly. His mom had told him he could have never saw her the way he remembered. He was walking in a river, stepped into a hole. Instantly, he says he saw her. She was standing in a room uh, full of books. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. So Rufus walked into this river, walked into the hole, and saw um, Dana in her home in present-day California in a room full of books. Okay. And she had more books than even his daddy's library. She was wearing pants. Dana was like a man. So he's confused. Uh, The way she is now, she's wearing pants now in his room. He thought she was a van. Thanks a lot, she says. It was like he saw her, started drowning, and then he stopped drowning. And then he was on the shore with his mom, dad, and her. He told his mom what he saw, and she hit him. (laughs) And she never hits him. He doesn't understand it. Wow. Anyway. And there is a part where he's like, well, are you like a spirit? And she goes, no, no, I'm as real as you. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Mama said what she cleared you that up early and quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm people. You little idiot. So anyway, um, mama said, <laughs> mama said what you did after you got me out of that water was like the second book of Kings when Elisha breathed life into a boy. She tried to stop you because you was just some nigga she never seen before. Dana is shocked. Why would his mother use that word? (laughs) Why would his mother use that word? And especially after Dana had just saved her son. I'm a black woman. And if you're going to call me anything other than my name, that's what you call me. 
Rufus is confused. <laughs> so anyway, why was he lighting the curtains on fire? Apparently, he likes lighting things on fire. He lit the stable on fire once. Why? Because his father wouldn't give him a horse. Oh, and then Pyro. recently, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And then recently, his father accused him of stealing and hit him. So Rufus swore he hadn't stolen anything, but his father hit him anyway. He had only stolen a dollar. <laughs> That's but what, that is. This is Rufus. Stealing. Yeah, but Rufus <laughs> reasoning is like, I told you I didn't steal. You hit me anyway, and anyway, I only stole a dollar. <laughs> Dana is shocked by the boy's sense of revenge and ability to deceive. He lit the curtains on fire in hopes that his father would lose all of his money when the house burned down. Mm. Dana wonders if the boy will manage to stay out of jail as an adult. Somehow, whenever the boy's gotten himself into trouble, he calls on Dana and she comes from the future. How exactly was he doing this? Neither of them knew. Rufus says his father hit him with a whip. The kind he uses on <clears throat> niggers and horses. Dana again is shocked. He uses the whip on who? When his mother saw his father whipping him like that, she took the boy, uh, Rufus, to Baltimore. But his dad came and brought Rufus back home. And soon the mother came back too. Wait, wait, wait. Baltimore? Were they near Maryland? This is what Dana's thinking. Mm. Rufus assures her that, of course, they're actually in Maryland. How could she not know that? A new fear wells up inside of Dana. What year is this? She asks Rufus. It's, it's uh, 1815. He says 1815. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> and so I'm going to pause here for a second. Okay. Sometimes as icebreakers, um, people will ask, if you could live in any other decade, what would it be? That's, a, um, that's an interesting question for a lot of groups of people. <laughs> for sure. Um, Dana is a little over 200 years in the past from present day um, 2020. 1976. Yeah, she's in 1815. Um, For her, it's yes, her real life is in 1976. But she's in 1815 now. The fear that must cover over her, wash over her. So Dana asks Rufus um, if he knows a woman named Alice. He does. And she's no slave. Alice was born free like her mother. Dana's mind begins reeling. Maybe this Rufus was her several times great great grandfather whose name was in the family Bible. That Rufus was married to a woman named Alice, according to the family record. Now Dana has more questions. First, how did Alice marry Rufus if they were indeed married? Second, why did no one in the family mention that Rufus was white if they knew? And third, what would have happened if she hadn't saved him? These two times, would he right. have died? And then would she have died without that ancestor? Oh, it's a lot of questions. Very it's back to the future. It's a lot of questions. Lots. I know what you're thinking. This came before Back to the Future. Okay. So <laughs> they got the idea from this book as far as I'm concerned. Say it again. So Rufus insists that Dana calls him master. Aha! So this is a child, right? <laughs> that she keeps saving because he's crazy. And he's like, you got to call me master. She laughs, but sees that the look on his face is serious. He grabs her arm and assures her she'll get into trouble with his father if she doesn't call Rufus master. Now, mind you, how old is this boy at this point? Is he, mm. is he 10, 12 yet? Maybe 10. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, then. But it does seem that the boy is afraid of her when she looks into his eyes. She agrees to call him Mr. Rufus if anyone else is around. Otherwise, he's just Rufus, and that's all we're going to say about that. Mm-hmm. The boy asks her. Um, the boy asks for her name, and when he finds out her name's Dana, he grows afraid. 
when he lit the curtains on fire, he heard a man calling, Dana, Dana, is it happening again? And someone else, it must have been her, replied, I think so. Something about Rufus is endearing to Dana. So so just going back, I'm sorry. Every time um, Dana is in the past or in the process of being taken from the present to the to the past, Rufus can see her in her present day setting only for a few seconds. And then he's back in his present and then she's there with him. Okay. Um, Something about Rufus though is endearing to Dana. She asks him to point her in the direction of Alice and her family and she heads out into the woods. Suddenly she's passed by a group of young white men on horseback along the road. They don't see her and she decides to follow them inconspicuously. She watches as they grab a family out of their home, a man, a woman, and a little girl. The little girl runs into the field and hides herself in the thicket near where Dana is hiding. They both watch as the young men tie the father to a tree and beat him relentlessly. Mm. Dana can smell his sweat and hears him crying and praying. She wants to vomit. She remembers that these groups are called patrols. Patrols were seeds of the KKK. When they are done nearly beating the life out of the man, they tie him to a horse and lead him to the city, but not before striking the wife and leaving her naked on the ground. The woman allows Dana, um, that wife allows Dana to come into the cabin with her and the little girl. The little girl's name is Alice. The man was the woman's husband and he had no pass to see his wife. So his wife is free, but he's a slave. And the slave master didn't give him a pass to go see his family, so he escaped to find her. The white slave owner he works for would never give him a pass to see his free wife because he wants the man to take on his, a new wife on his plantation so that the slave owner will own all of their children. This is heartbreakingly told. This is 100% the way it was. Uh, the blanket all three will share for the night is outside. The men must have, the patrol must have um, dragged it out when they dragged out the three people. Um, and Dana offers to retrieve it. When she does, she's blindsided by one of the patrollers, the oh one who goodness. struck Alice's mom. He came back. He's shocked by how much Dana resembles Alice's mom, but he quickly decides Dana must be her runaway sister, twin right. sister, perhaps. Right. That's what he says. He says he'll sell her and she takes off running. Not into the house, but into the woods. Because um, Alice's she, mom is like, please don't come in here. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, she does try to go to the house first, but then she has to go off because Alice's mom is like, please, please don't. The man, the patroller, the white man strikes Dana um, harder mm. than she's ever been hit. He climbs on top of her and beats her. She gets her hands near his eyes, but is too afraid to gouge them. Instead, she hits and scratches the man. He then decides he'll do more than hit her. He pulls her blouse open and continues hitting her. She finds a stick just in time and bashes him in the head. He lays on top of her unconscious. She quickly blacks out and comes to. Every inch of her body is covered in pain now, and she has like dark circles around her eyes. Um, And she sees dark eyes above her. (laughs) She begins fighting, but then she hears her name. Someone's going, Dana, Dana. How could the patroller know her name? It's not the white man. It's Kevin. She's home in her bed, bloody and shaken, but safe. She's been gone two or three minutes in present day time. Not the hours she's experienced in antebellum South, but still longer than the last time. So the last time she was gone for just minutes um, now it's been many minutes more. The Kevin first is, time she was gone for seconds. Well, minutes, right? Bec- oh, in present day. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you're right. So um, in present day, she was gone for minutes when she was saving Rufus from drowning. Now, I'm seconds. Now it's been minutes. Okay, let's right. move on. I'm mm-hmm. getting confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> Kevin is terrified. He hands her a knife and insists that if this happens again, you take this nice knife with you and you defend yourself. He also comes to the conclusion that Dana is more in control than she realizes. Every time she faces fear of death, she's transported back home. So all she has to do is place herself in harm's way and they quickly realize how foolish this plan is. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Jump <laughs> right. off a building every time you end up at Antebellum <laughs> South. And this is great because... Um, there's like this conversation not being had about people who were truly born in antebellum South and escaped from that environment. It's not that easy. Nope. It's not that okay. easy. Mm-hmm. Do I really look like the guy that attacked you? Kevin asks. Dana reassures him. And I'm like, how would he look like the attacker? Exactly. I, I was like that too. That was my initial reaction. So let's talk more about Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> the meat cute. So how Dana and Kevin met? Dana was working out of a slave market, a casual labor agency, which you've done. You know, yes, I have. Uh huh. To supplement her, yeah, everything. Dana is you and you is Dana. (laughs) Um, and she was doing this to supplement her writing income, which was likely zero dollars and zero zero cents. Right. In fact, she walked uh, through the day looking like a zombie, popping notos <laughs> and of caffeine pills and working for the temp agency when she wasn't writing. Um, so she was tired all the time. One day at a shop that employed her temporarily, she met a man who asked if she was a writer. He was a shop employee and she tried to ignore him. But then he mentioned how he, too, was a writer and his work was just published. He was leaving this job soon. She looked at him again, this time with admiration and honestly envy. He was white with gray hair, but smooth skin, muscular, and her height, 5'8". His eyes were so pale that they were colorless. Eat with me. I want to hear about what you're writing, says Kevin before walking away. Over lunch, she learns that Kevin was just, has just sold his book and scored a paperback deal, which would support him while he wrote his next book. He buys her lunch and makes her eat, knowing she must be on a restricted diet like all poor writers. <laughs> they got some things in common, okay? Both of their parents wanted them to choose sensible careers like an engineer or a teacher, and both of their parents are now unfortunately dead. They started a routine of eating together after this day. He had published three novels, um, but they brought in so little money that he took side jobs and kept writing. So this last deal is like a big deal for him. He was 34. She was 22 years old. Present day. Back to the present. They've decided to forge freedom papers for Dana and Kevin. So Kevin is like, if this happens again, um, I'm going to write your papers, gal. No, I'm just kidding. So Kevin like loves Dana. Okay, you guys. I know how you're feeling. I'm feeling it too. Okay. But Kevin is like, let's go to the library and figure out what freedom papers look like and write you up some. Okay. He's being pragmatic. Dana is packing a small bag with with um, essentials in it just in case it happens again. And she's gone for a longer period of time. Like and the other. And then two. <laughs> and two brushes. But, you and know, it's. Um, she's like doesn't want to leave the house. This has happened twice already. She had a really a rougher experience the second time around, and she doesn't want to leave the house. Not even to go to the library. Not to even get right. food. She wants it because she doesn't know when this thing is going to happen. What if she's driving and then the car is unmanned and runs in and hits somebody? You know, she like is always living in fear now. 
Yeah, she's immediately reasonable about this dizziness that happens to her um, and sends her somewhere. So, yeah. So before he leaves for the library, Kevin checks in on Dana. She doesn't look good, partially because of the beating and partially because the room around her seems to be spinning. Oh, no. no. Kevin runs to her side and soon they both find themselves in a wooden area. Oh, my goodness. They've both been transported. Yes. Oh, no. At least her to-go bag is in between them. So it made it on the trip, too. Ahead of them is Rufus and a young black boy. Rufus has just fallen from a tree and broken his leg. Kevin and Dana convince the young black boy, whose name is Nigel, to get Rufus' father for help. Reluctantly, Nigel goes. Who are you? Rufus inquires of Kevin. Niggas can't marry white people. Ooh, Rufus child, retorts. You got them, them, um, you know, get it, girl. Accent. <laughs> Do the thing. <laughs> Dana grabs Kevin before he can respond in a way he shouldn't. Rufus is confused, like genuinely confused. How would you like for people to call you white trash when they talk to you? Dana asked the boy. Rufus is indignant. I'm not trash. Mm. Dana struck a nerve. (laughs) Dana had struck the nerve she aimed at. Dana explains to Rufus that she and Kevin are from the future. Okay. She levels with him. We're from 1976. For Rufus, the year is currently 1819. Rufus' dad arrives with a wagon to take the boy. He and Kevin discuss something privately, and then they all head to the house. I'm like, what are they talking about? Why exactly. are you know what's going on? I'm scared. So um, Dana continues um, to, with the slaves um, towing the wagon, and Kevin is with Rufus's dad. Because remember, kids, Kevin is a white man, and we're in the 1800s now. We're in Antebellum South. <clears throat> when they arrive at the house, Rufus' mom, Margaret, the one that was hysterical when he was drowning oh so many years ago, walks into the room and sees the boy injured. She begins screaming hysterically. She's good with the hysterics. Good with just them. as she, She's just very as, drama filled. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> just as she had done before by the water. She sends Dana to the slaves quarters outside with the cook, Sarah, Sarah's deaf daughter and the man who must be Nigel's father. Dana learns what it's like to be a slave on the humble plantation owned by Rufus' father. Rufus' father is known to have fits of anger, and his wife is no better. Sarah, the cook, um, the slave, once had four children and a husband. The husband died when a tree he was cutting fell on him, and Rufus' father had her three other children sold. She was only allowed to keep one, the girl, because the girl is deaf, an affliction for which Sarah is forced to thank God. Dana thinks if Sarah ever wanted to kill Rufus' father, that man wouldn't know what hit him. This is the cook. I mean, do you really want to get on the cook bath side? Oh, well. Never. Dems was the days. Kevin comes outside and he and Dana talk secretly behind a large tree. He can't believe where they are. He can't believe what's going on. There's so many interesting periods in history they could have traveled to, he laments. She retorts that she can't think of one she'd like to visit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess that answers that question we talked about earlier. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, we could be on the boat with Christopher Columbus. We could be discovering a new world. We could, you know, and she's like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to do none of that. And do you, are you hearing yourself? (laughs) Who would you be in that period and who would I be? Mm, And then he's like, oh, yeah, you black. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, right. Okay, um. I could survive here, he says. And now I'm really like, Ugh, I oh, know, no, Kevin. I don't like you like that, Kevin, no more. And he's like, at least he'd be a lot safer than her. 
<laughs> she it's thinks true. how this place would change Kevin and in ways she don't even want to think about. Then Kevin explains the story he gave Rufus's dad. So this is what they were talking about privately um, when they went to get uh, Rufus. Dana was his last purchase before he lost a large sum of money. He's headed to Louisiana to sell her at a good price. She can read and write, which both of Rufus' parents suspected and resented her for since neither of them are literate. Um, so the white people are not literate, um, which was common. And so they they resent Dana, who they can kind of pick up on as like very literate and uppity. Um, okay. And, <laughs> and Kevin is telling Rufus's dad that he's lied to Dana and Dana believes they're heading to New York where she'll be free. But really, Kevin's like nudging the dad and like, but really, I'm taking her to Louisiana. I don't know if he's doing an accent, but it's funny if he is. <laughs> Um, and Dana's like, oh my so. goodness, you've made yourself seem so disgusting. That's what Dana's thinking. Hours turn into days. They live here now, you guys. Sarah Dang. patiently teaches Dana how to cook and manage the kitchen. Margaret throws hot coffee on Dana and screams abuses at her every chance she gets. So in the slave quarters, Sarah, the cook, is being so patient and loving with Dana. Sarah is the best, okay? Back in the house, the big house, Margaret, who's Rufus's mom, is being a tyrant. And she's like jealous of Dana. And she's she's just a terrible person. It's clear to everyone what type of arrangement Dana and Kevin have in this world. Mm-hmm. But Rufus family puts Kevin in a guest room while Dana sleeps with the house slaves in the attic on a small mat on the floor. When Kevin learns of this, he arranges to speak again with Dana. He's also heard about the way Rufus' mom treats her. He's ready to leave. So for real, this is like her husband. And her husband learns that she's sleeping on a mat with strangers in an attic. And that uh, this woman, Margaret, is throwing hot coffee in her face. And he's like, okay, I don't know what we're going to do, but we out of here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Exactly. Go ahead. And, and when they get in these situations where they're off to the side or behind this tree, kind of hiding and talking, I'm always so nervous then. I'm just very nervous yes. they're going to get caught yeah, Talking. so Kevin's always trying to arrange for a way for him to see his wife, for him to see Dana, who everyone thinks is this slave that he's trying to sell in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And it's very, like, um, uh, precarious. <laughs> I keep using that word. It's early. <laughs> it's a fine so word. It's a very precarious situation. Throw it out there. Here Say it go. five more times. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only word I know, guys. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Um, she discourages him, Dana does, because she wants to be near Rufus. She's attached to him now, although she hasn't seen the boy in days. She's developed this motherly love for this terrible child. Mm -hmm. Kevin hints that he's planning to scare Dana out of her mind. <laughs> she, she won't see it coming. And then maybe then they'll all be able to go back home. And she's she like, said, but you already told me. <laughs> that don't even what? make sense. And That's also, not what work. are you planning to do? <laughs> yeah, it's I might not really be that scared when you do it also. So I'm going to be We're like, laughing, but weird. it's not that funny. Because <laughs> right now funny. I'm so, so on my trust with Kevin. So I'm like, what are you going to do to my dad? I, mean, I don't know. We can't help but distrust him, but this is a situation. <laughs> so uh, Kevin fully recognizes what it must look like their relationship is. And so he's like, you're going to sleep in my room from now on. And no one's going to say anything. If they do, they can say it to me. If they keep quiet, Kevin says, Margaret and Waylon, that's the dad's name, may not notice. He's seen kids running around that look more like Waylon than Rufus does. <laughs> God, so obviously Margaret has had practice, quote unquote, not noticing things. Okay. 
And yeah, um, Dana's because like, they're, yeah, some of these kids are obviously Waylands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they also, during that time, had a little religious superiority about what was right and proper, right? Yeah, hypocrites. Just yeah. plain out hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were, um, Waylon is obviously uh, raping some of his slaves, and the children that they produce are in the slave quarters, but they look more like Wayland than Rufus does. If we have to leave, maybe I can get a job in Baltimore, Kevin suggests. Why not Pennsylvania, Dana replies. If we have to leave, let it be for a free state. Oh, yeah. I should have thought of that, Kevin says. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this is where my palms are sweating. The book fall right out of my hand. Okay. Dana's goal is to stay with Rufus as long as possible, influence him to be better than his parents, and make life tolerable for the slaves around him. Okay, this is her master plan. She also is attached to the boy, like we said. Okay, she actually loves this little tyrant. One day he calls for her and asks if she can read. Waylon thinks Dana can read, but Margaret is convinced it's not possible for a black woman to read. She doesn't say black woman, but you know. Also, before marrying Margaret, Waylon was married to another woman. And Waylon, just so you know, is the family name. Oh, it's the last name? Yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. Okay. Um, The house they live in was his first wife's. She read so much that when she died, uh, the father, (laughs) Waylon, made sure his next wife hated reading. (laughs) Before leaving Rufus' room, the boy tells Dana to be careful. You're too darn smart with knowledge and stuff. And he's heard some things, so someone might try to hurt you. I don't know. Good night. Okay, when she steps into the hallway, Mr. Waylon is there. Oh, yes, obviously the last name. He asks her if she was reading to his boy, and she responds that she was. She calls him sir. He wants to buy her from Kevin to be Rufus' teacher, he says. And then he looks her over. I'd rather stay with Kevin, she says. Waylon then looks at her with pity. If you do, he says, you'll live to regret it. So he's thinking Kevin is like secretly trying to sell you, gal. And I got a better life for you. You can teach my boy and, you know, submit to whatever I throw your way. So anyway, yeah, one day. Shoes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. One day Dana is approached by Margaret who asks where Dana slept last night. When she tells her where, truthfully, in with my husband. Crazy. <laughs> no, but she's like, not? ma'am, I slept in Master or Mr. Kevin's room or whatever. Ooh, I need a moment. <laughs> <sighs> hmm When she tells her where, Margaret slaps Dana. Dana then looks down on this short, beautiful idiot. (laughs) She's staring at Margaret. She stares directly at her and realizes something. Margaret is afraid of her. The woman had no work to do in the house. Her only job was to cause trouble, and that's what she's doing. So Dana decided to keep an extra eye on this beautiful idiot. She was also slightly unhinged, Margaret was, and nervous. That may make her dangerous. Mm -hmm. Dana also learns why Sarah in particular hates Margaret. It was Margaret's idea to sell Sarah's three boys. She wanted to buy furnishings for her home, Margaret did. Things she didn't even need so she'd appear to be a lady, a proper lady, which she wasn't. Something about her was low class. So she sold Sarah's children to live life as a low class poser with nice furniture. She also was Mm. kind enough to warn. um, Sarah was kind enough to warn Dana. Listen, I know you're extra close. Wink, wink. With your master, she told Dana. Be careful because Margaret wants that man. Whoa. And listen, I've seen you you two talking and he'll do just about anything you say. So have him free you while you're still young. Okay. 
this is Sarah giving Dana advice. One morning, emerging from Kevin's room, Dana runs into Mr. Whalen, who almost smiles before winking at her. Ew. She's playing the part of her husband's um, whore, frankly, on a plantation in the South. Let that sink in. Her and Kevin began sinking into their roles surprisingly easily. Somehow, their quick adjustment disturbs Dana. This could be a great time to live in, Kevin sometimes says. I keep thinking what an experience it would be to go west and see, see the building of this country. <laughs> oh, West? Wow. West, Dana retorts. That's where they're doing it to the Indians instead of the blacks. Kevin looked at her strangely. He's been doing that a lot lately, looking at her strangely. I spoke to Kevin again. You might be able to go through this whole experience as an observer, I said. I can understand that because most of the time, I'm still an observer. It's protection. It's 1976 shielding and cushioning 1819 for me. But now and then, like with the kids game, I can't maintain the distance. I'm drawn all the way into 1819 and I don't know what to do. I ought to be doing something. I know that. There's nothing you could do that wouldn't eventually get you whipped or killed. I shrugged. You... You haven't already done anything, have you? Just started to teach Nigel to read and write, I said. Nothing more subversive than that. If Waylon catches you and I'm not around. I know, so stay close. The boy wants to learn and I'm going to teach him. He raised one leg against his chest and leaned forward looking at me. You think someday he'll ride his own pass and head north, don't you? At least he'll be able to. I see Waylon was right about educated slaves. I turned to look at him. Do a good job with Nigel, he said quietly. Maybe when you're gone... He'll be able to teach others. I nodded solemnly. I'd bring him in to learn with Rufus if people weren't so good at listening at doors in that house. And Margaret is always wandering in and out. I know. That's why I didn't ask you. I closed my eyes and saw the children playing their game again. The ease seemed so frightening, I said. Now I see why. What? The ease. Us. The children. I never realized how easily people could be trained to accept slavery. Shortly after starting the habit of reading to Rufus with the approval of Waylon, um, Dana has begun teaching young Nigel, the slave boy, how to read also. The boy is progressing, and when given a spelling test, he gets every answer right. Dana then throws that test in the fire of the slave's cookhouse to hide the evidence. Oh, One day while teaching Nigel with a book she took from Waylon's library, Tom Waylon walked into the oh, cabin. This never happens. The mm. um, slave master never walks into the um, slave's cabin. White people never enter the cookout. He sees her with the book, takes her arm and drags her to the door. Oh, Dana mouths goodness. to Nigel, get Kevin, get Kevin. Waylon then drags Dana outside and begins to thrash her with a whip. The pain is paralyzing. It's so overwhelming that her mind completely shuts down. All she can think about is the pain. Her mouth is full of dirt and blood. She begins vomiting. Through blurry vision, she sees Kevin running toward her, and she realizes what has hap what's happening right now. Oh, he has to reach me, she thinks, and then she passes out. Now we're on chapter four, the fight. Back to the past. One day while they were dating, Kevin asked Dana what she thinks about them getting married. It's now time to tell their families about their plans. He's convinced his sister would be thrilled, but he returns from her disturbed. She wasn't thrilled. In fact, quite the opposite. She told him that Dana will never be welcome in her home and that he, if he marries her, neither will he. Mm. She said a lot of things he doesn't want to share with Dana. To him, it seems she was just repeating words handed to her by her husband, a man she jokingly said once could have been a Nazi. Huh. Still, growing up, she had a black best friend who was so similar to her. They were joined at the hip. What changed? 
This is what Kevin's wondering in our modern day. Um, as he's telling his family his plans to propose to Dana. Mm-hmm. Dana then talks to her family. Dana's aunt is satisfied that her children will be light. <laughs> she doesn't like white people, oh, but she prefers light skinned black people. If you can figure that out. Mm. Her uncle, on the other hand, feels personally rejected by her. Her aunt and uncle own a few small investment properties and her uncle has to level with her. He says he'd rather will their property to a church than to her and see them fall into white hands. So her and Kevin, Dana and Kevin run to Vegas and pretend that they haven't got got a family (laughs) and then they get married. Um, So back to the real, real present. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, like 76 uh, present. Right. There we go. Okay. Back to 76. Dana mm-hmm. comes too. Mm-hmm. I awoke. I was lying flat on my stomach, my face pressed uncomfortably against something cold and hard. My body below the neck rested on something slightly softer. Slowly, I became aware of sunlight and shadow of shapes. I lifted my head, started to sit up, and my back suddenly caught fire. I fell forward, hit my head hard on the bare floor of the bathroom. My bathroom. I was home. Kevin! I listened. I could have looked around, but I didn't want to. Kevin! I got up, aware that my eyes were streaming muddy tears, aware of the pain. God, the pain. For several seconds, all I could do was lean against the wall and bear it, slowly. I discovered that I wasn't as weak as I had thought. In fact, by the time I was fully conscious, I wasn't weak at all. It was only the pain that made me move slowly, carefully, like a woman three times my age. I could see now that I'd been lying with my head in the bathroom and my body in the bedroom. Now I went into the bathroom and turned on the water to fill the tub, warm water. I don't think I could have stood hot or cold. My blouse was stuck to my back. It was cut to pieces, really, but the pieces were stuck to me. My back was cut up pretty badly, too, from what I could feel. I had seen old photographs of the backs of people who had been slaves. I could remember the scars, thick and ugly. Kevin had always told me how smooth my skin was. I took off my pants and shoes and got into the tub, still wearing my blouse. I would let the water soften it until I could ease it from my back. In the tub, I sat for a long long while without moving without thinking listening for what i knew i would not hear elsewhere in the house the pain was a friend pain had never been a friend to me before but now it kept me still it forced reality on me and kept me sane but kevin i leaned forward and cried into the dirty pink water the skin of my back stretched agonizingly and the water got pinker it was all pointless there was nothing i could do I had no control at all over anything. Kevin might as well be dead. Abandoned in 1819, Kevin was dead. Looking at her modern surroundings, she feels disoriented. She was gone for nearly two months and returned somehow the same day she left. She begins waiting to go back again, just waiting to get back to Kevin, keeping a bag close to her uh, with things like aspirin and toothpaste. She was at home for eight days before getting dizzy again and waking up in the past. When she awoke- Eight days. So years have now to? gone by. Oh no! Oh, in Antebellum oh, South. Oh no, Kevin. Where's Kevin? <laughs> Did he wait? Girl, he's somewhere on a plantation with his own flock of slaves. Just kidding, you guys. That didn't happen. When she awoke, she was in a field and a black man was beating a white man nearly to death. Standing next to them was a young woman whose dress was ripped down the middle. She was holding it closed. It was clear what had happened. Rufus had grown to be possibly worse than his father. The black man was married to the girl. The girl was Alice. 
Dana stopped the fight and the girl remembered her. She looked at Dana and Alice remembered her. Her father was eventually sold to a plantation, she tells Dana, far away so that he couldn't see her and her mom. Her mom is dead now. She says as kids they were friends, but eventually Rufus became too friendly and tried to have her husband sold. Also, Dana's husband left. Um, Kevin. So we all know something's weird with you because you like pop up and you disappear. Anyway, you should know. The weird man you brought last time, the white man, he's gone. He had to get off this plantation. Oh, no. So when you got beat and you disappeared, he left. He waited for you a long time, but he had to leave. Mm. Alice oh, is like, Kevin. I think he went up north. The boy, Rufus, is 17 or 18 years old now. 13 or 14 years have passed since Dana first met Rufus at the river. Wow. When Rufus comes to, he spits fire at Dana over Isaac, Alice's husband. He sets on killing him. He believes he would treat Alice better than any field hand. If only she had stopped saying no. This is Rufus. These are Rufus's words. Well, apparently it's clear she didn't teach him anything. Okay. Yeah. So apparently Rufus sexually assaulted Alice successfully and he's torn inside. He's happy knowing that because she fled with a runaway slave, She'll end up in prison, beat, and then enslaved. She's He's happy about that. He's like, that's what uh, Alice deserves. Right. Alice was born free, but she won't stay that way for long, he thinks. He wants to marry Alice as Kevin married Dana. He's like, if you can marry a white man, then I can marry Alice, the woman who I sexually assaulted, who I don't even see as having agency. Dana gets Rufus to agree not to tell his father about Isaac, who is Alice's husband, and she goes and gets help from the house because Rufus is like all bloody and toe up. When Tom Whalen sees her, oh, that's right, the dad's name is Tom. So when Tom Whalen sees her, he doesn't say much. He's like, okay, you back. Um, They eventually retrieve Rufus from the woods near where he was beat to a pulp for um, sexually assaulting Alice. And he recognizes uh, right away that... um was it Rufus is in like life danger? It's a life yeah. threatening oh, situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tom is like, Tom Whalen is like, well, you're here, Dana, so my boy must be half dead. Somewhere. And he sends somebody to like, go get such and such and get all of this stuff together because we got to go like kind of save my boy. Yeah. Tom corners Dana. It's you, he says. What are you? I suppose you want to stay here. He says, it sounds like he's giving her a choice. Maybe he's a little afraid of her too now. Mm -hmm. He says, he tells her, look, Kevin came back last year looking for you. He thinks maybe it was last year and maybe he'll come back soon. So just stay here and maybe Kevin will come back and get you. Rufus is badly injured, but when she hands him an aspirin, he feels better. He begins talking more. He gives um, Dana letters from Kevin. They're from New York and Boston. She reads them and puts them away before the doctor walks in. Back in the house, Sarah tells Dana about Margaret. Margaret got pregnant with twins. They both died and she lost her mind. Her sister picked her up and took her to Baltimore. Nigel is a young man now. The that's, um, that's slave how boy. It work, huh? Yeah, he's handsome and he's kind. He and Sarah's daughter, the deaf girl, are married in the only way slaves can be married, a union that the law does not recognize. Sarah's daughter is pregnant. This is great news, okay? Well, it's a little sad because that baby will be a slave, but Sarah and Nigel, you know, are really kind to each other. Dana writes a letter for Kevin. Rufus promises to mail it, but only after she burns the book she brought with her from the future. Um, That book talks about, like, slavery and what's going to happen in the future and the war and how present-day 
differs from Antebellum South. And he's like, uh-uh, I don't like this book, burn it. <laughs> um, it also has a map of Maryland inside. <laughs> so this is blackmail, frankly. Rufus is like, burn oh, that book or yes. I won't mail your Ooh. letter. And you can't mail the letter yourself. Let me. Because in this time period, you still ain't nothing but a black. This child is evil. Oh, okay. So we're seeing now the depth of Rufus' evilness. Uh, Rufus won't mail yeah. the letter. She doesn't do as he says. He doesn't want Dana to leave. You're home, Rufus tells her. So Rufus is attached to oh. Dana too. Mm-hmm. Soon Rufus, in a good mood, heads for the city with Nigel as his driver. He's going to mail Dana's letter because she did burn the book. But what Dana doesn't know is that Isaac and Alice have been caught. Rufus is going to oh, actually no. get Alice. That's really where he's going. When they return, Alice is filthy, bloody, and barely alive. Why wasn't she given oh, no. a doctor, mm. Dana asks. No one is getting a doctor for a N-word. Black people often die from treatable maladies. Dana asks for brine. Um, she has some knowledge about medicine from her time period that she's going to use on um on Alice to treat her wounds. And she uses brine, causing the girl unbearable pain while making her better. She's covered in cuts and dog bites, Alice is. It looks like the dogs were allowed mm. to just gnaw at her for mm. as long as they mm -hmm. liked. Rufus then climbs into bed next to Alice to Dana's horror and disgust. He promises, I'm not going to hurt her. I just want to lay next to her. Um, Dana goes mm -hmm. to lay down in the attic. Rufus had caused this girl trouble and got rewarded for it. You know, Alice has lost her husband. She's half unconscious. And here Rufus got what he wanted. It's just, it, it's all, um, it's like haunting um, Dana, the results of this. So Sarah walks in and tells her that Isaac's ears were cut off before he was sold to someone in Mississippi. That's Alice's husband. Also, sometimes Rufus lies, just so you know, because I know you love that little boy for some reason who's now 18. But just so you know, he's a big liar. Ooh. So he said he mailed Dana's letter, but who knows if he did. Also, she now said, that Rufus check. owns Alice, check, you, mm -hmm, you, you know how to do that. So you check to make sure he mailed it. Also, now that Rufus owns Alice, hopefully he'll be more gentle with her. Oh. This is what Sarah's saying. That fact makes them both shudder with disgust. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Sarah's daughter goes into labor and Dana is left to prepare the dinner with a healing um, Alice as her assistant. Alice, born free, asks Dana what it's like to be a slave. This is so weird. Dana's thinking of how her husband will soon return to save her. And she responds, I don't know. I've been a slave. I haven't been a slave for that long. So I, I don't know what to tell you. Alice realizes that Dana isn't telling her everything and she gets upset. Alice has amnesia. She wants to know why she's there and who she is. Soon she remembers Isaac, her husband, and his ears being cut off. She begins screaming. Her memory has oh, returned. Above her wailing, Dana hears a new baby cry. And that's um, Sarah's granddaughter. Um, Tom Whaling is talking to his son, Rufus, in the library while Dana eavesdrops. Tom is telling Rufus he'll have to beat Alice half to death to get what he wants from her. Rufus should have been satisfied with Dana. This is what they're saying. He accredits her yeah. white master, Kevin, for giving her some sense. Too much sense. 
Mm. Rufus later asked Dana to talk to Alice to make her accommodating to Rufus's wishes. When Dana refuses, he threatens her. He also tells her he knows she was married to Kevin for only four years. He's been without her for five. Maybe he doesn't want you anymore. If he ever caught himself wanting Dana the way he wants Alice, Rufus is like, I'd slit my throat. One of us would be doing some cutting, Dana thinks. Rufus tells her she wouldn't be a friend to Alice if she didn't help her to agree to Rufus. It was a low-class form of cunning. When Dana tells Alice what Rufus wants, Alice asks her a question. Would you go to him? I glance at the floor. We're in different situations. What I do doesn't matter. Would you go to him? No, even though he's just like your husband. He isn't, but all right. Even though you don't, you, you don't hate him like I do. Even so, then I won't go either. What will you do? I don't know. Run away? I got up to leave. Where are you going? She asked quickly. To Star Rufus. If I really work at it, I think I can get him to let you off tonight. That will give you a start. She dropped the dress to the floor and came out of her chair to grab me. No, Dana, don't go. She drew a deep breath, then seemed to sag. I'm lying. I can't run again. I can't. You'd be hungry and cold and sick out there and so tired you can't walk. Then they find you and set dogs on you. My God, the dogs. She was silent for a moment. I'm going to him. He knew I would sooner or later, but he don't know how I wish I had the nerve to just kill him. She went to him. She adjusted, became a quieter, more subdued person. She didn't kill, but she seemed to die a little. Rufus begins regularly assaulting and occasionally beating Alice. He's happier these days um, because of her quiet passiveness. She doesn't say no anymore. That's disgusting. One day, Alice quietly approaches Dana with two letters she found where she wasn't supposed to be looking. There the letters in her hand are the letters Dana wrote to Kevin. Rufus never sent them. Mm. Dana decides to run. Okay, He lied and they had a pact about not lying to each other. And he lied. Oh, that's right. They didn't. Yeah. Um, so he's a liar and he doesn't. I mean, she's a black. So what does he care? Right. Dana decides to run. She makes good way in the middle of the night, but is caught quickly by Tom and Rufus. Rufus jumps on her and Tom kicks her in the face, knocking out two teeth. Then they throw her over the horse like a grain sack. They take her to the barn, tie her hands to something and raise it so her feet barely touch the ground. Then they beat her ruthlessly until she passes out. But this time, she didn't go home. She was being cared for by Alice, just as she had taken care of Alice. Mm-hmm. Wow. After Dana gets better, Rufus hands her a letter. It's from Kevin. He's coming. I told you my father was a fair man, and you laughed at me. That's what Rufus is saying. When Tom realized Rufus never sent the letter, he wrote to Kevin himself. So in Tom Wheeling's mind, he's a fair man. And if you say you're going to do something, even if you say it to a black, you have to do it. You have to be a man of your word. Mm -hmm. Dana thinks of Alice. She said her stomach turned. And remember that Alice is her ancestor. Like, um, so she she feels an attachment to her um, because they're family. And Rufus. Yeah, yeah, that's true. She said her stomach turns when Rufus touches her. That's what Alice says. But eventually she would bear him one child. Um, This is what Dana knows, of course. If Rufus ever tried to assault her, Dana was sure she'd kill him. But it seems it would never come to that. Rufus thankfully didn't look at her that way, but he possessed her in the mind. 
which is why he never sent the letters she wrote to Kevin. He wanted to keep her close so he wouldn't feel alone. When his father heard Rufus gave his word and still didn't send the letters, he got angry and wrote Kevin, as we said. Um, Tom cared about a man keeping his word at least. One day, Tom and Rufus are gone, leaving Edward in charge. Um, he's Margaret's cousin, Edward is, and is always trying to make himself feel important at the expense of the slaves. Though Dana is still badly injured from that beating she received, um, he orders Dana to go wash the linen. So she's in unbearable pain before Alice walks in to help her. When she looks out to the house, she sees a white man, Dana does, with a long white beard approaching. It's Kevin. Wow. She runs to him. Oh, my goodness. She How runs many years? to Kevin. Like five at this point. Um, her and Kevin mount his horse. Dana's back is still sore, but they leave. Soon, they run into Rufus on the road. Rufus aims a rifle at Kevin. Dana thinks, everyone has tried to warn me how mean Rufus really is. She tries to goad him into shooting her, but Rufus seems to understand that would harm him in some way too. What are you going to do, Rufus? Keep us here at gunpoint so you can rob Kevin. Get back to the house, he said. His voice had gone hard. Kevin and I looked at each other and I spoke softly. I already know all I ever want to find out about being a slave, I told him. I'd rather be shot than go back in there. I won't let them keep you, Kevin promised. Come on. No. I glared at him. You stay or go as you please. I'm not going back in that house. Rufus cursed in disgust. Kevin, put her over your shoulder and bring her in. Kevin didn't move. I would have been amazed if he had. Still trying to get other people to do your dirty work for you, aren't you, Ruth? I said bitterly. First your father, now Kevin. To think I wasted my time saving your worthless life. I stepped toward the mare and caught her reins as though to remount. At that moment, Rufus's composure broke. You're not leaving, he shouted. He sort of crouched around the gun, clearly on the verge of firing. You're not leaving me! He was going to shoot. I pushed him too far. I was Alice all over again, rejecting him. Terrified in spite of myself, I dove past the mare's head, not caring how I fell, as long as I put something between myself and the rifle. I hit the ground, not too hard, tried to scramble up and found that I couldn't. My balance was gone. I heard shouting, Kevin's voice, Rufus' voice. Suddenly, I saw the gun blurred, but seemingly only inches from my head. I hit at it and missed. It wasn't quite where it appeared to be. Everything was distorted, blurred. Kevin! I screamed. I couldn't leave him behind again, not even if my scream made Rufus fire. Something landed heavily on my back and I screamed again, this time in pain. Everything went dark. Chapter 5, The Storm. Dana wakes up on her living room floor. Beside her is Kevin. She had been gone for just a few hours in present day time. Kevin? Eight days. Kevin is finding it hard to adjust and he has a slight accent now. Mm -hmm. He tells Dana some of the things he's seen. He saw a woman die oh. in childbirth. Her master strung her up by the wrist and beat her until the baby fell out of her. And she died too. Dana thinks of a woman slave who had three fingers cut off when her master caught her riding. That woman had a child every year. Mm. Each child was sold one by one. Oh, Kevin used much of his time helping slaves to escape. So um, that time that he left that uh, wheeling plantation, he was an abolitionist. Kevin was. And part of me is like, whoo, the wheeling house <laughs> brought out <laughs> the wheeling house brought out of them both a sense of urgency and strength that their present softer environment did not. Everything was too soft for Kevin. His anxiety started to rise until Dana grabs his arm. Ooh, he looks so at her in shock. He looks at her like almost like, why are you touching me? I'm a white man. <laughs> yes. It's like, <laughs> it was it's like, like that. 
<laughs> it's like part of his mind is still in the past in antebellum south um he needed time to adjust and he sits alone in a room of the house when he emerges and they begin talking at the table oh dana is pulled back into the past <laughs> when she <Why>? arrives <laughs> This is why when she arrives, Rufus is face down in a pool of water and vomit. I'm saying vomit a lot. I don't know. I don't Listen. remember that word. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> it's, it's storming outside. They get back to the house and Tom talks privately to Dana. Tom is old now, frail and hunched. He wants her to keep helping his boy if she knows what's good for him. Mm. Uh, good for her. <laughs> Excuse me. So Tom is like low key trying to threaten Dana. Like you make sure my boy keeps living or I'll get you. And Dana's like, but will you though? <laughs> and also how? <laughs> okay. Listen, she did. She was standing up for herself at this point. She was like, there's gotta be a pro quo. So she won't be beat again. She thinks. And she tells him that the day he hits her will be the last day. She helps Rufus. He mm. shakes with rage before sending her to Rufus. She learned that Alice had two children that died. Both looked white. The one that survived even has red hair. However, the surviving boy is not Dana's ancestor. She'll have to continue nursing and caring for Rufus until Alice has a child named Hagar. She has to continue caring for Rufus until he assaults Alice enough to give her a child named Hagar. This book is twisting my mind up like a wet rag and all my I thoughts. I just can't take it. Right. And he's actually okay. at this point. Um, she's actually at this point pregnant. But we don't know. Alice is. Yeah, Alice is. And we don't know what the baby is. Soon, Tom Whaling, the father, dies. Rufus blames Dana. Like all your future medicine couldn't save my dad. You let him die. I'm going to get you. And so he has Dana go work in the field where she's nearly beaten to death. This is a huge change for her, even though um, she, I mean, being a slave was an enormous change. change. Yes. She was still a house slave. So to send her to the field where her body hadn't been conditioned and where the work was brutal, even more brutal, um, almost killed her. Rufus can and will hurt her when he chooses. She realizes when Tom died, Rufus says his father left debts. He sold slaves to pay for some of them, which tears apart the hearts of the slaves, including Dana. Now she knew some of them that were sold. Eventually, Margaret returns to the home. Margaret was the mom and Dana is assigned to care for her. Margaret is different now. She's calmer. She has downgraded from a terror to a persistent nuisance. Eventually, Alice becomes <laughs> pregnant again. <laughs> so this so now Alice is pregnant and she confides in Dana that she's going to run. Rufus has given her an ultimatum. Act like you like me or I won't set your children, our children free. Act like so, you like me. Mm-hmm. So she plans to escape. She's going to be a runaway. She has the baby. It's a girl named Hagar. She's the darkest baby Alice has. And Alice is so proud. So here's a few things going on these days. First, Dana um, mentioned to Rufus that his son with Alice is smart, okay? So Rufus has asked Dana to teach the boy how to read, even though he's a slave, the boy. He handles the possibility of freedom for the children, or he ha handles that possibility of freeing the children over Alice's head constantly. Um, but he lies, and Alice is tired of it. Maybe he'll free their them, children, right? maybe he won't. Mm -hmm. Second, fellow slaves are growing more jealous of Dana and Alice, 
um, Rufus sees them as the same woman. So they, they look a lot alike and the master treats them like they're the same woman. And people feel like, where are you the master's prostitute? Like you both, we don't trust either of y'all. So even though they're being assaulted, that assault is earning them the distrust of the slaves also. So they're not really safe anywhere. They don't. And um, anyway, this is a lot. And third, a black man told Dana, it's a shame you're spoken for at a slave party because he's saying like Rufus, you basically belong to Rufus. After he dared to speak to her or look at her in a way Rufus didn't like, Rufus had that man sold. The man's sister blamed Dana and was poised to attack her. Rufus came between them. When Dana grabbed his hand, pleading that he not sell that man, Rufus hit Dana. It was the breaking of an unspoken agreement, and he knew it. He told her to get in the house. She deliberately disobeyed him, heading to the cookhouse instead. In there, she calmly took a warm knife and slit her wrist, Dana did. Okay. When she came to, she was lying on her bed. Kevin is looking down on her. A doctor friend had bandaged bandaged her up, recommending she see a psychiatrist. She was gone for a few hours. For her, though, it was eight months. Kevin alludes to Dana not saving Rufus the next time. He's afraid Rufus will abuse her in an even more severe way next time. Um, So when he was there before being transported back, he heard Rufus screaming something. He said, you're not going to leave me. So remember when they hopped on Kevin's horse and they met Rufus on the road and Rufus pointed that gun at them? Mm Mm-hmm. Before they were transported back to their present, Kevin heard Rufus saying, you're not going to leave me like desperately talking to Dana. Because remember, he like owns her in his mind. In his mind. Yeah. Yeah. So Dana is afraid all the slaves will be sold if Rufus isn't around. So there's like this conflict here. Rufus is a terrible monster like slave masters were then. But if he's gone, then what will happen to the slaves? Truthfully, they'll just be sold to another monster. And I won't be there to, like, look after him and try to maneuver things. All right. So, boom. Uh, They had 15 days together, Kevin and Dana, before she was taken back again. (sighs) Aren't you exhausted? Oh, my goodness. I am. I wanted to go home. (laughs) I know. Okay. What are you doing here? Rufus says. He then leads her to a barn pushes her inside. He doesn't enter and he closes the door. It's the barn where Tom beat her. Now, we know two things about her um, back to the future moment, back to the past moments. Um, One, it always happens when Rufus is half dead. And two, it's never anything good on the other side because she black. So here we go. Someone is hanging in the barn with her. Obviously, it's not Rufus because he just closed the door. Someone is hanging there by the neck. She looks closer. Mm. It's Alice. Alice's dress is clean and white, and she's wearing shoes that Rufus bought her. Dana cuts Alice down and closes the girl's eyes. No. Alice must have gotten dressed up and, and then hung herself. Um, So Rufus confirms this when he enters the barn. Sarah catches up to Dana. Remember, Sarah's the cook. Sarah doesn't believe it. Rufus killed her, Sarah says. He He sold her children, his children. He didn't care. 
watching that happen um, to Alice brought all the pain back to Sarah. Because remember, three of Sarah's boys were sold. And she felt Alice's pain in her heart. Rufus calls Dana to the house. How could you sell your children? I didn't, Rufus said. He sent them to his mother's relatives to scare Alice. So remember how he said he's always holding the children's imminent freedom like over Alice's head? Do this for me or our children will never be free. Sicko. Anyway, he said he sold them to scare Alice, but really he sent them to he sent their children to his mother's relatives. Alice didn't know that. Um, and his goal was to make Alice like him or at least act like she liked him. Great plan, Rufus. Um, wow. So Dana's like, give those children freedom. That's the least you can do. After the funeral for Alice, Rufus um, left to give his children freedom papers and bring them back. At least that's what he says when he leaves. Who knows? Because Rufus lies. Rufus returns with their children. The boy calls Rufus daddy. And Rufus has been teaching him how to read. This is good. With the time she has, she tries to get Rufus to free more slaves, maybe all of them. Rufus confides in Dana that he used to dream about her, dreams about her not helping him, leaving him to die. He can't imagine her leaving him again. He looks at Dana differently now, and it makes her scared. He grabs her arm, but then he lets her free. Uh, She goes to the attic where the slaves sleep and plans to slit her wrist to hopefully take her back home to the present day. Um, Suddenly, Rufus walks into the attic. This never happens. Life has never meant much to him, okay? That's why he keeps getting in these situations where he's near death. Life has no value to him. Um, So life isn't worth the trouble living, he feels. And that's what he's thinking when he sits next to Dana. They're alone, okay? Dana and Rufus in the attic. He grabs her arm and she knows what's in his head. What do I have to lose? He says. Dana thinks it would be easier to allow him to abuse her than to kill him. Mm. She could remember Mm. when that um, patroller was on top of her and she couldn't gouge his eyes out. Just the thought of it. She just couldn't see herself doing it. Well, she can't really imagine killing Rufus. Um, She can't imagine killing anybody. She tries to imagine allowing him to do what he wants to her. But she shakes the thought and sinks her knife into his side. He punches her. She stabs again. She throws up. <laughs> There's another vomit situation. Uh, Nigel walks in. Oh, no, Nigel says. Rufus gives a sigh and his body goes limp. Then Dana feels something on her arm, a clamp, something cold. It was the wall of her living room in the present. It had her arm. She pulled her arm <sighs> toward her. Yes. And agony encircled her. She screams. So that's really where the book ends. There's a brief epilogue. Dana takes Kevin to find Rufus' grave. So she's looking for the grave of her ancestors. All they found was an old newspaper article. It said a fire killed Rufus, a house fire. Dana infers that Nigel started the fire to protect everyone so that no one knew um, the slave master was murdered. Most of Rufus' slaves were sold. Some went free, she assumes, including Alice's children, who likely went with their grandmother to Baltimore. The Mm. end. Let's take a break. (laughs) You ready to take a break? Yeah, yeah, let's take a break. All right, let's do it.
Alexis. <laughs> that was quick. I'm that telling was a- you these breaks be fast. <laughs> and that book was heavy. What did you think? What's your final verdict? And would you recommend Kindred by Octavia Butler? Okay, so let me start by saying I don't think I've ever read a book with actual slavery in it um, happening and the abuse that people suffered. Yeah, the fact I've that never humans read a book like really that. did this to other um, humans is baffling. It's hard to wrap your mind around it and like, is. sit it with is hard that to truth. Take. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Very much so. Very much so. I, I read Amistad, but it's not about actual slavery. So there were some okay. scenes that were just really hard to read, to listen to. Um, but every character had depth. And I felt really drawn in. I was engaged by the story. There were parts when I was truly on the edge of my seat, wondering what was going to happen. Is she going to be pulled back again? What's going to happen? Is she going to be beaten? I like the whole concept of the book. I just don't want to read about slavery. Reading this made me know that I don't want to read about slavery. So if that comes up, stop me. Mm-hmm. But um, if you want to read about that, I encourage you to read it. But I don't want to read about that. So um, what about you? <laughs> Would you recommend it? So there were themes in this book uh, that were explored in a remarkable way. How the past can affect our present. So the past keeps taking, taking, taking Dana. And she's not, she doesn't exist if not for this criminality, this horribleness Um, This legal horribleness that actually occurred in time. Legal. So without that, she she doesn't exist. And then the the fact that the past took her arm, I think that like represents something for black Americans today. I think Octavia is uh, delicately presenting a metaphor or an allegory that is very uh, bitter (laughs) and she's doing it in a delicious cake. This book is for me. From beginning to end, I was captivated. I mean, this Mm -hmm. time travel, it just happens. And I like that she didn't waste time with the machine of time traveling. That's not what it's about. It's about our past, our present, and our future and how it's all affected. So none of it is, um, mm, we we eventually have to deal with it (laughs) because it's who we are. It's why we're here. Are the people you love loving you back? If it was convenient or socially acceptable, would they still be loyal to you? Uh, Did Kevin's love ever waver for Dana? What does his work as an abolitionist show about his modern Mm -hmm. character? Yeah, what does that say about him? That if the whole world turned on you, I would still be on your side. Right. That's powerful. That's beautiful. I love that. And I'm weary of Kevin once I found out, like, uh-oh, he loved his time period. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to see the country develop, you know? <laughs> uh, but at least this character couldn't sit by and allow other people to be murdered and abused um, if there was something he could do about it. And the fact that he remained loyal to his wife, even though he was without her in his time longer than he was with her in the present, said a lot about his love and their love together. So there's also this contrast between love versus possession. Did Rufus ever love Dana? He he wanted to possess her, own her. Did he ever That's love anybody? <laughs> yeah. No, he, not he, he even D- Dana, Alice, 
No, no, because that's not how you love people. And he never knew how to love because he watched his father show his quote unquote love for people. See how that turned out. Yeah, we didn't touch on it, but he would yell at his mom. He we did touch on the fact that he tried to destroy their family home. He never loved anyone, including himself. No. Uh, life didn't seem worth the trouble living for him. So nor nor did um, Tom, the father, show love to the son. So he's not getting love. He doesn't know how to love. So he can't then love Alice or Dana. He never did. It wasn't possible because he didn't have that quality within himself. So I felt like Butler is exploring this um, this love versus possession, and she's not giving an excuse to why people act a certain way, but maybe a reason. She doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't. <laughs> and then why do humans need the people... Um, that they deem lower class, the the low to mid class worker. How would how would we get groceries from whole paycheck? How would we get paper products in our grocery stores? How would we get appliances without low income middle class workers today? And how do we treat those people who are part of the lower class, quote unquote lower class? Um yeah. Also, you know, sometimes people ask, well, was slavery evil? Because some slave masters were good to their slaves and some masters even taught their slaves how to read. Listen, the institution broke up families. It um, fertilized. Yes. It fertilized uh, abuse on every level, level, mentally, sexually. It and just if you take away the humanity economically, it was not the way of the future. It hurt everybody Literally. in some way. Yeah, they were owning people and Ooh, considering people less than them. Okay, so no, it, no, it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay at all because these attitudes that they had towards the people that they owned, no matter if they taught them to read or not, they were prevalent in society and they were reinforced by the things that they did and saw every day. And so, so to let's be outside that of that reasoning. Yeah. What reasoning? You know, how evil was slavery? Was it didn't, you know, just oh, kill all that. Yeah. Kill that noise. Okay. <laughs> kill that foolishness. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you had to be uh, likely an exceptional person to go against the grain, to go against what was right at the time. If you were white in America at that time, if you were black in America, there are a lot of exceptional minds who were never able to develop fully. Um, there's a lot of art, a lot of reasoning we just won't ever get because those people were oppressed for a very, very long time. And we've we've all been robbed time. because of it. So, Absolutely. yeah. So my verdict is, Kendrick, what? This book, good. I would absolutely read it again. And I would definitely recommend it. And it's short. It's a good book. <laughs> it's short, right? Did you feel like it, it was? Is. Yeah, it's a short book. So uh, it's a short, rich book. It's like a very um, small piece of a fudge brownie. <laughs> It is it is very rich, but it's it's um compact. So yeah, that's my um, my story. I'm sticking to it. Love this book. I wasn't able to um find the book anywhere. I would have had to and I didn't have enough time to buy the book. So I only had the audio recording of it. I, I did want to see the words on the page, you know, I, I feel strong. Yeah, I feel about a connection that. to the story in a different way. I yeah, I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Um please it don't take away that I didn't enjoy the book because I did. It just, I don't like to read about those things. Mm -hmm. okay. It's a personal story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That is. So yeah. What a great pick, Kari. Right. That was your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, 
<laughs> we appreciate that. Thanks. We appreciate your contribution this week. <laughs> I was engaged, okay? <laughs> but we're going to get out of here. What we reading next week, Kari? We are reading White Like Her by Gail <laughs> Lukasik. Yeah, it's good. I wrote down What Like Her? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready. It's too early, okay? It's too it's early. Too early. Stop. I'm going back to bed. No after pressure. This. Immediately, okay? Immediately. <laughs> Listen, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll look, we, we look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday, okay? Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Hey. Support the cause by leaving a five star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love you too. We do. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. We want to see you every week. (laughs) If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Liz Society. Also, visit LizSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. Okay? Wait, I got one thing. (laughs) Sorry. You guys, October 22nd, we are launching our BookTube oh. channel. Oh, and so announce subscribe. It. Huh? <gasps> yeah. I'm listening. Yeah. I'm engaged. <laughs> you draw me in. I yeah, want this so announcement, I, I too. I mean, we holding on to it like it's a big secret. So we are already on YouTube, but it's just our podcast there. But we're going to officially um, dip a toe into the BookTube pool. And so please subscribe now. Let's Society Pod on YouTube and um, watch it with us. We have a premiere October 22nd. I think it's at like 1230 or one in the afternoon and it's going to be fun. So we can't wait to uh, chat with you guys. Yep. Check us out. And until next time, read, read something. something.